different drugs have different um, properties. And with opioids like heroin, oxycodone, oxycodone, Percocet, all of those drugs, they cause you to become physically dependent on the drug. Hey family, I'm Leon Guidry. Welcome to the Brother Be Well podcast. Our conversations focus on mental health and wellness. Our intent is to provide a safe space for boys and men of color to reduce disparities, remove stigma, heal trauma, and to end prolonged suffering. Listen up, y'all. Hello, I'm Michael P. Coleman, content director for Brother Be Well. Last summer, I was proud to be a mentor during Brother Be Well's 11-week academy for males of color designed to teach substance use prevention strategies. A key member of the team who worked directly with the youth every week was Roland Williams, master addictions counselor and a self-described heroin and cocaine addict. Roland's been in recovery and working in the substance use recovery industry since 1986. Williams is an interventionist, an author, trainer, counselor, and consultant specializing in addiction-related issues. He's one of the first licensed advanced addiction counselors in the state of California. He conducts presentations, staff trainings, and program development all over the world, and he's also founder and president of Free Life Enterprises Counseling and Consulting Services. Over the course of last summer, I got to watch Roland help transform the lives of 21 youth aged 15 to 26. And that's not hyperbole. As we stayed in touch with those youth who were with us last summer, one of them told me just last week that had it not been very specifically for something Roland said to him, that student would have most likely experimented already with heroin when he returned to college a couple months ago. He told me he had been thinking about it when he enrolled in the program and Roland literally talked him out of it. While Roland's agreed to join the Brother Be Well Youth Substance Youth Prevention Team once again next summer, we're gonna do it again with a new cohort. We couldn't wait to bring Roland back and share some of his wisdom, his life experiences, his expertise in the recovery field with you. I gave you his credentials a minute ago. I get to call him my friend too, so you meet him now. He's gonna be a friend of yours. Roland Williams, welcome back to Brother Be Well, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. I really appreciate the work you're doing and happy to be involved in it. Really, really good. I know how busy you are. So let's jump right into this, Roland. And let's start with what I think might be the beginning for you. You've had an interesting, you had an interesting path rather leading you to Chicago where you grew up and having moved there when you were five years old, I understand. Tell that story a little bit and specifically tell me whether or not you think your early relationship with men of color might have informed your interest in being involved in programs like Brother Be Well? Uh, um, I was born in Germany. And um, my mom, um, a German girl, she was 17 years, 17 years old when I was born. She had had a one night stand with a, a black um, um, soldier, GI. And she didn't know she was pregnant by that. She was naive, she was 17. She didn't know she was pregnant. And so when I was born, um, her boyfriend was with her and her mom at the delivery home. And when I popped out, they were shocked. They weren't expecting to see uh, hmm. a half black baby. And her mom told her, the boyfriend left her, and her mom told her that you're not bringing that baby home. And they took me to an orphanage where I lived for the first five months of my life at an orphanage in Germany. And I was adopted by a, a, a black family from Chicago, another soldier. 
And I was, I lived in Germany my first five years of my life. And then I came to the U.S. when I was five years old mm-hmm. to the south side of Chicago, through the hood. I, I grew up in the Woodlawn district of Chicago, which is uh, right in the heart of the south side in an all black neighborhood. You could be in your car and drive all day and never see any black people, any white people, just black. Everybody was black. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the role models in my community were not the doctors, the lawyers, or the Indian chiefs. It was not the, the working man. Um, it was the hustlers, the people who were, you know, were the the drug dealers, the gangsters, the gamblers, the the pimps, the, um, the bank robbers, you know, people who were doing all kind of creative things to, you know, keep food on the table. And, you know, one of the things I know how easy it is for men of young men of color, particularly to grow up in neighborhoods or circumstances like that, where that looks attractive, where it, it's enticing to them. And I also know some of the negative messages that young men of color get about what it means to be a young man of color. And those messages come within the community. They also come from society at large, and they're perpetuated by media. And so I think we start off with a lot of misconceptions. I always tell people it's not so much what you have to learn, it's what you have to unlearn. So because of my history and what I've seen both personally and professionally, I just think these these young guys, man, they need some information. They need another perspective. And if I could help with that, then it's I'm happy to do that. Well, you have you certainly helped with that last summer. We'll get into that in a second. Roland, you you touched on um, before I get to the next question I plan to ask you. I wanted to ask you, you said something last summer I never forgot. So I want you to touch on it now. You told those young men that you were happy to be talking to them that day because you usually wind up talking to young men of color when they're already in prison. And I was I was. I, I was glad I wasn't on camera then because the look on my face, I was like, whoa, that that that's a powerful message to be giving these young men at a period in their lives where they're at a crossroads, kind of like the the guy who told me he was thinking about heroin. Mm-hmm. So talk about that a little bit. Talk about that that juncture in your life where you can you can make one one seemingly small, but but we both know it's a huge mistake that could change the course of your life with with regard to drugs. Yeah, you know, like a a fish doesn't know he's wet. A fish doesn't know he's in the water. So a lot of times people don't know what they don't know. Like I said, a lot of these youngsters are full of misinformation. And they're operating as though that misinformation is factual. And like I said in that that, um, group, that, you know, there's so many, you know, young men of color incarcerated right now. You know, there was once a time there were more black men in prison than there were in college. That's not true today, but that was true a decade ago. I think it's not the message. It's not the messenger, it's the message. And I think that our job, and one of the things about working with young people is that you're planting seeds. You're just planting seeds and you just keep planting seeds. And you may not even see the seeds take root. You know, the seed may not take root for a year or two, five years, but you could be in the mall one day or in the movie theater in the supermarket and some young man walks up to you and say, hey, Mr. Williams, you don't remember, you remember me? I said, no, not really. He said, well, you had me in that class and you said something to me that I'll never forget. 
Yeah. And I want you to know that I'm doing well now, man. And what you said to me really helped me, even though it looked like I might not have been paying attention. And I've been clean and sober for two years. And that's my wife over there. And we're getting ready to have a baby. And I got a job. I mean, that's one of the things that happens that make this just all worthwhile. And so many times, especially with young people, you don't get the immediate gratification of having them say, wow, thank you. That really helped because the seed might not have taken root yet, but you keep planting the seeds because you could say something that could make the light bulb come on for someone and change their life. And I've had the honor, you know, the the joy of being able to do that many times throughout my 36 year career. Well, I want to thank you for what you did um, for the Brother Be Well Youth last summer, and I'm already looking forward to summer 2023, Roland. Thanks a lot. You you also mentioned to that cohort, I want to ask the next question. You talked about how you started getting high back when you were in high school. Can you take us all back to those early days during your, your walk with drugs, your journey with drugs? When I was a kid, I think I was in the third grade. And one of the kids, I don't know, whatever age you are, I want to say I was about 10 or 11 when this happened. And I was in school, and one of the kids came to class drunk. And he was passed out on his desk drunk. And we all thought that that was the coolest thing ever. We thought, oh, my God, this guy is so cool. And he just couldn't even walk. He was just stinking drunk. He was running like well. And I remember being attracted to that, you know, just being able to take something to make you look like a rebel and make you seem cool and make you seem, you know, um, grown up. And all those things were really appealing to me. And in my neighborhood in Chicago, everybody was drinking and smoking weed and taking pills. And the thing that we were told not to do was to don't shoot up, don't do heroin. Back in the 70s, cocaine wasn't even considered addictive. People would say, you could use, you can get high, you can do cocaine and all this other stuff, just don't use heroin, because that's the one that'll get you. So I actually started using getting high when I was 11, 12 years old. I was a kid. When I see other 11 and 12-year-olds and I think about them getting high, I think this guy, this kid's too young to be smoking and drinking and doing this. But I didn't feel like that when I was young. And a lot of people that I work with started at a similar age, 10, 11, 12, 13, and they didn't feel like they were too young to be getting high. When I was 16 years old, I was I joined the military prematurely. I lied about my age and the recruiter um, went along with it to just get one more recruit. We sent me in at saying I was 17, but he knew and I knew I was only 16. I went to Europe because that was the last year of the Vietnam draft. And you could request at that time where you wanted to be stationed. If you didn't want to go to Vietnam, you sign up for four years. You could pick your duty station. So I picked Europe. One weekend, and um, I was stationed in Germany where I was born. One weekend, me and some of my friends went to Amsterdam. And that weekend, I stuck a needle in my arm for the first time um, because it looked cool. I saw some other people doing it. It looked like this is the ultimate of getting high. If you're going to get high, this is like the ultimate. I wanted to do the ultimate. You know, drugs were the first thing that made me feel brave. I had no fear when it came to doing drugs. I was a scared kid because I grew up in a vibrant home, but I had no fear of doing drugs. And I stuck that needle in my arm and I, I knew I had crossed the line because I had violated the code of my community 
just don't do heroin. And I did heroin and I loved it from day one. I thought, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for my whole life. And I vowed to do it as much as I could moving forward, which I did until I stopped when I was 29. And um, and I see that happen, you know. I mean, people, I didn't, I knew what the drug gave me at that time, but I had no clue what it was going to take from me. And it took way, way more than it gave me. And um, yeah, I said, that was my experience and how I got started. Wow. And I think I see it a lot. You know, people just get attracted to what they, you know, the whole culture of getting high, the whole hierarchy of getting high, the whole social um, implications of getting high, the, the whole um, personality change that comes with getting high. And all of that is part of the thing. And when you're young and you're searching, trying to figure out when you're a teenager in those formative years and you feel awkward and clumsy and social situations, and you don't know how to quite talk to people that you're attracted to and you, you know, you're not confident and you're insecure and all of that. Drugs and alcohol help you get through that. Hmm. That's very, very seductive for people. You've talked about too. You one of the things you and 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 Roland, forgive me if I, I don't I don't think I can get too personal with a question with you. Typically, I ask people if you don't mind answering. You strike me as somebody that just lays it all out there. So if I get too personal, just let me know. You you said during the sessions over the summer, you, you said to the youth, addicts have often felt like they didn't fit in or that they felt different from everybody else. Did you feel that way? Is that part of what led you down that path? Well, I don't know if that, what well, I think that, you know, um, yes, I felt that way. You know, I was biracial, half German, living in an all black neighborhood. I didn't have a, a biological mom or dad. Um, um, I felt unwanted and all of that as a kid. So yeah, that I felt different, certainly. Mm -hmm. But I think everybody has their version of that. You know, I think sure. people who wind up getting into drugs, they feel like something is off. They feel like they aren't quite okay for whatever reason. And you can fill in the the whys, you know, I'm not okay because, you know, I'm not enough because. I mean, they're seeking something. Um, they're filling a hole. They're filling a void. You know, drugs and alcohol either help get you to something that you where you want to be will help you get away from someplace you don't want to be. And um, this, the, the process is very similar. The details are often very different. Yeah. You've talked about, sir, your, your journey into um, harder drugs. I, I'm interested in whether or not, and having started with marijuana, I'm, I'm interested in your perspective about marijuana being a gateway drug. And I'm especially interested in that in light of, of what our society has done. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but we've rebranded what, what when I was a kid, it was pot or weed, and it was a bad thing. You, you didn't want to do that. Now, you know, I was at a, a social gathering last week and people were passing around edibles like it was, you know, mints, breath mints or something. And everybody was just kind of taking taking a little mint and taking a, a edible, a gummy and and going about their way. I'm interested in your thoughts about um, marijuana being a gateway drug, especially in light of that rebranding to cannabis for that yeah. for that substance. I, I think the legalization of marijuana, much like the legalization of alcohol following prohibition, was an economic decision. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a it's a huge. And why let the drug dealers get all that money when the, the government can do it and tax it and make money off of it? Mm -hmm. It was purely a financial decision. The, the legalization of marijuana has increased the denial about the problems associated with marijuana. Mm 
marijuana is not as harmless as people think it is. And this marijuana that they've just given out in these dispensaries right now yeah. is probably 15 to 40 percent stronger than what we were smoking back in the day, wow. 15, 20 years ago. You know, they have gotten scientific with it. It's, it's super concentrated. Marijuana can lead to all kinds of problems, respiratory problems, heart problems, psychiatric problems, um, some of which are cognitive problems, some of which are irreparable. They don't, you, I mean, and you can't, they don't undo themselves. Some people are, you know, if they have a pre-existing psychiatric condition, marijuana can, can exacerbate those that problem. Um, yeah. Anyway, the, in terms of it being a gateway drug, I think, you know, the real gateway is once people start with any drug that they get to the point where they like being high. They find out that here's something that I can take that's going to change the way I feel. It makes me feel better. It helps me get through uncomfortable situations. It's kind of a shortcut. And the earlier you do it, the equivalent is putting um, training wheels on your emotional development. Like you're as a teenager, you're developing your personality, your coping mechanisms, your impulse control, your decision making, your self esteem, your self awareness, your your socialization skills. All those are being formed as a teenager. If you get uncomfortable and you say, "Hey, if I smoke some weed, it makes it more comfortable. I, I'm 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 less inhibited. I'm funnier. I'm braver. I can dance. I can talk to the girls." So weed is a is it like a training wheel? You know, when you get off balance, it helps stabilize you. So if I start that as I'm 13 years old, then I've gotten into a pattern of whenever I get uncomfortable or get into a situation I can't handle, I can take this drug and it's going to help me get through it. Well, I've created a narrative that says that drugs help me. And so weed, alcohol, pills, cocaine, whatever the drug is, the, the gateway is that perspective, that narrative. Said, I need something to make me better. This doesn't feel good. That's not okay. I'm supposed to feel good. So I'm gonna, I need to take something to feel better. That's the narrative. So people, weed is so common, everybody. And, and like I said earlier, the legalization of it has increased the denial about the dangers of it. Yeah. But yes, I do think it's a gateway drug. Um, um, you know, in terms of the hierarchy of drugs, as I mentioned earlier, it's probably one of the safer drugs considering what's out there. But now yeah. these days, nothing's really safe because, you know, they're, they're, they're putting um, fentanyl in everything. So the next joint you smoke, the next bong hit you take could be the last one you take because nobody expected that they would be lacing weed or cannabis products with fentanyl, certainly yeah. if you buy it off the street. Yeah, yeah. You you talked about sir um, those those that transition from from more mild substances to the first time you shot up when you were sixteen. Can you tell us a little bit about very specifically what that did to your body, to your thoughts, your brain, to your mood, to maybe the relationships in your life? Did did, did were the relationships impacted by that decision to do that? And I'm also wondering whether you had been um, diagnosed with any mental health issues prior to your um, beginning to indulge in, in harder drugs. I'm glad you brought up the mental. So in my personal story, I had not been diagnosed with any mental mental health issues. And only in the last few years, I'm 66 years old, have I thought that I might have some mild case of anhedonia, low-grade depression, not feeling mm -hmm. depressed, but feeling flat often. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I've never been diagnosed with a psychiatric condition, but I do know that for a lot of people that do have psychiatric conditions with early onset, that onsets in their in their adolescence, um, um, marijuana can be very a form of self-medicating and other drugs can be a form of self-medicating their psychiatric symptoms. Um, that wasn't my case. I think what happened for me is with, you know, kind of, you know, dovetailing on the notion of a gateway drug, I just needed more. Like once you open that door to say, I like to get high and this substance does it pretty soon, you know, in many drugs, they have what they call a, a tolerance factor. Like you develop a tolerance to that drug, meaning that it takes you more to get the same effect. Like what it used to be able to get this effect off of $10 worth. Now it takes you $15 worth. Then mm. it takes you $20 worth. It takes you more and more. And then you start getting even more creative with say, well, I hear there's another drug that's even stronger than that. It's nicer than that. And people, when you get into that drug culture, everybody's introducing you to what they found that's really good. You're going to see other people doing different drugs. And that's going to look interesting, sound interesting. And you'll try that. You're prone to try it because you're already a person who gets high. So there are very few purists when it comes to drugs, so meaning people that only use one drugs. Most people use multiple types of drugs. And it starts with one. And usually it progresses. When I got to the point where I started injecting drugs, where I knew in my head that I had crossed the line, it depends on the nature of the drug, the, the, the drug that you use, because different drugs have different um, properties. And with opioids like heroin, um, oxycodone, oxycodone, Percocet, um, Dilaudid, all of Norcos, all of those drugs, they cause you to become physically dependent on the drug. Mm-hmm. Meaning that if you don't, you if if Mother Teresa um, or Nelson Mandela um, used oxycodone for two weeks for a dental surgery, after two weeks Nelson Mandela would be dependent on opioids and would be looking for some more opioids. That's the nature of that drug. It creates a physical dependence with daily with regular use, and that dependence causes you to do all kind of stuff. Because now you, your body tells you you have to have it. And when you don't have it, you get sick. So all your relationships go by the wayside over time. Mm. The drug, the, the tolerance increases. You need more and more just to feel. At some point, people will always say, I don't even get high anymore. I'm just using to be well, just using the function. I have to use to get out of the bed. I have to use to go about my day. Without it, I'm sick as a dog. And so obviously relationships are compromised because of that, you know, and people wind up hanging out with different kinds of people in different kinds of places and doing different kinds of things, usually criminal behavior, lying, deceit, um, manipulation, all of that stuff starts to happen. So people wind up getting ostracized by the, the community that had been their support system and they develop a whole new support system like-minded people who are doing the same thing. And usually it goes downhill from there. Yeah. Yeah. You speaking of going downhill and then we'll move on. You, you, I think I'm, I'm quoting you. I hope I am. You, you, I caught you in another interview and you described drugs by saying they went from being your friend to your, your boss to a slave master. Does that sound like you? I, I, man, that was another moment where I just froze when you said that because I, 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 my own personal journey, I've not gone beyond uh, cannabis, but I, I, in talking to you, I 
I, you, you talked me out of even thinking about some, some anything more serious than that. Um, and not on a regular basis at all. So that was a powerful statement, man. I really appreciate you walking us through that. You you got a date that you talk about, June 10th, 1986. Uh, tell us about the significance of that date. Well, that's my first day clean and sober. That's my, that day is more important than my birthday. Yeah. Uh, my family celebrates that day. Just all my friends, you know, that's my, what we call clean date or sobriety date. And that's the day, your first day clean and sober. And you know, I, my journey started I, on June 9th, 1986. I was in jail. I was, um, I actually shot up that day in jail. I was in San Bruno County Jail, which is uh, right connected to the San Francisco County. And um, I was doing a, um, a year sentence, um, which I had a four year prison sentence that they they modified it so I did a year of county jail and then I was to be released from that county jail to go to rehab for 18 months to two years that was my alternative sentence I was originally sentenced to four years in prison for drug-related crimes which is all I ever did was drug-related crimes and and so when I went in jail waiting to go get sentenced to the treatment center, I was getting high in jail the whole time. My girl was bringing me dope um, to jail. She was having contact visits and giving, putting balloons in my mouth and, and full of dope. And so on June 9th, 1986, I shot up for the last time. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on who tells the story, I missed. The injection didn't go into the vein. It, it, it was a dirty needle and it was just horrible. And I remember having on a white trusty uniform and blood. I was hitting, used, injecting it in the hand because my the rest of my veins were no good. And people go through a progression also of injection sites. You burn out one, you go to the other. So now I'm in the hands. The next place to go is the neck, which I was willing to do because I was willing to go to any lengths to get the drugs in me. I missed in my hand and the drug, I had blood dripping down my white trusty uniform. And um, I just remember feeling so miserable that it it didn't get in properly. I wasn't going to feel it the same way. And it wasn't going to get the rush. And I was disgusted. And um, the very next day, I said to myself that day on June 9th, I'm so sick of this. And the very next day, they said, Williams, roll it up. And they took me to Menlo Park to treatment, to the Veterans Administration in Menlo Park. And that was my first day, June 10th, 1986, of not using drugs. From that time, I was 16 years old in Amsterdam until at this point, I was 29 years old. I used every day if I could. Every day if I could. The only reason I didn't use that day is because I didn't have any money or I couldn't find any or there was no drugs. I got high every day from the time I first did it until I um, stopped, until June 10th, 1986. So June 10th, 1986 is the most important day in my life. Wow, wow. This has been the Brother Be Well podcast. I'm Leon Guidry. Shout out to our sponsors, Sutter Health and the Sacramento County Division of Behavioral Health Services through the voter-approved Proposition 63 Mental Health Services Act. And don't forget our goals, to reduce disparities, remove stigma, heal trauma, and to end prolonged suffering. 
If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at BrotherBeWell or email info at BrotherBeWell.com. Click the subscribe button right now and plan to join us next time. Until then, be well, brothers.